0: All right, what up, what up, episode number 21 of the Stiff Shots podcast. And today we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, instead of reviewing a show and breaking it down and roasting it and saying funny jokes, we're going to be saying funny jokes to our friend Nick Brashear, formerly of the Absolute Intense Wrestling Organization, and still uh, dabbles in 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 and out of the ring, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't ever been wrong before, so I can't imagine that I would start now. But with me as always is Rick Jimenez. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I just had a workout that should have been real stupid and like, oh, this is like a little bitch workout. But instead, it made me feel like a little bitch. My legs are on fire. Rocks the house. Had a great post workout shaking, proteining device. For well, the
0: last two. Days that I've gone to the gym, I've been having this real problem where, as soon as I get there and put my car in park, I'm like, "Man, I don't want to be here." But then I see the people coming out of the gym and what they look like, and I'm like, "Well, I don't want to look like them." So then I go inside, and, uh, and then I come outside later yeah. on.
1: And you and you look better than those people.
0: Yeah. Well, at all times, even when d- I'm
1: d- donuts or not. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's what I need. I need the motivation. That's what it is. I haven't had any donuts in man. It's been a couple weeks but I did have some cinnamon rolls. I know we don't talk about religion too much on this podcast, but there's got to be a God because I went to Tennessee and there was an all-vegan custom cinnamon roll shop called Cineholic, and I was putting them down. Nick, you got a Cineholic up where you're at?
2: I've never heard of a Cineholic.
0: Oh, man, you got a franchise one. You got to personally go <laughs> into business. What? I called okay. Suzanne at Cineholic the other day to talk about franchising one, and she... Called me, texted me, emailed me, and sent me a message on a socialized media. So they're desperate for investors. But anyway, enough about Cinnamon. We'll get back to that later.
1: So we have Nick Brashear, the vanilla fucking gorilla, with (laughs) us. Pro wrestler, mixed martial artist, all-around good guy, Cleveland punk rock enthusiast. Nick, it is great to have you on this very cool podcasting episode show Uh, thank you for having me so we've known each other for a while we know each other through music but we quickly connected through wrestling so how long have you been involved in wrestling
2: uh well i pretty much got my start my first night uh that i ever wrestled um i was untrained in a battle royal was the same night owen hart died back in 1999 I believe it was May 23rd, there was a a, a kid, uh, well, yeah, we were all kids, but uh, he basically figured out a way to rent a ring off of uh, JT Lightning, who, you know, was the the big pro in town and the big trainer in Cleveland at the time, and uh, he would just set up shows. And at the time, he was marking us all out, like, basically charging us to be on the show. So, like, you know... you probably, when you first got your start, were involved with, like, pay-to-play music shows. Uh, this was pay-to-play wrestling. But, so on top of having to give him 20 bucks to be on the show, you also had to then go out and hustle and sell, like, 20 tickets. And tickets were only, like, 5 bucks. So, uh, you know, when everyone was in high school, you know, everyone's, like, in 10th, 11th, or 12th grade, the draws were pretty good um, at that time. And, uh, it just took off from there. He just kept doing these shows. Eventually, like we all got smart and we're like, uh, we're not paying anymore. And in fact, we want a cut of the ticket sales, but, uh, things kept going strong. And then, uh, you know, wrestling kind of just started its, uh, slow decline. And, uh, you know, we were drawing like 500, 600 people. And then it turned into like a hundred people and it was like, wow. But, uh. Yeah, through that, that's how I met JT. Uh, JT, you know, there was a few people that were involved, and the company was called EFW. It stood for Extreme Futuristic Wrestling. And uh, make note of that, because I'll get back to EFW uh, later. So we met JT. There's a couple people, um, one of them being Matt Cross, who, you know, was on Lucha Underground as the Son of Havoc, uh, wrestles in every country around the world. He was also Probably, on
0: a Tough Enough, if I'm not mistaken, right?
2: Yes. So he, uh, you know, he got his start in the Cleveland scene. Uh, basically the same story that I have,
1: except, you know, he's a lot more talented and got booked. <laughs> so your first match ever, you were untrained in a battle royal in 1999 in high school or just after high school, and you paid $20 to be on the show And then had to sell 20 tickets at $5 each without getting a cut of that money. Correct. Okay, so that is the most 90s indie wrestling start. (laughs) And just as as typical as it gets. And you are right. That is is very, very much uh, a practice that happened in music as well in that time period.
2: Uh, okay. There's some, some cities that
1: it's still going on. Oh, uh, dude, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, wh- wh- one of those cities is every city on Long Island still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I like the name Extreme Futuristic Wrestling because it reminds me of Dippin' Dots because they were like, you know, the ice cream of the future. <laughs> but oh. it's still like around, you know what I mean? So I got to imagine, no disrespect to EFW, but probably not a whole lot of things happening back then that aren't still happening now, right?
2: Uh, no, but, um, the EFW is coming back next year. Um, one of the guys, myself and a guy that caught on, uh, near the end of the original EFW run has kind of brought it back, except we changed what the letters stand for. Uh, it now is going to be the extreme fight world. Um, I don't, I don't know why that was the name that was given, but there's not, I mean, extreme futuristic wrestling was stupid too, you know, but, uh, we just, uh, we liked the logo because we had a really cool hand-drawn logo, um, that a local artist, uh, designed back then. Um, I was able to basically resurrect it and get it into a high res print so we can, you know, use it for marketing and such.
0: Hey, nothing more Ohio than a hand-drawn logo for your company.
2: (laughs) So, uh, the EFW, uh, lingered on for a few years. Uh, we were pretty much through training and doing Cleveland All Pro Wrestling shows as we were trained with JT. But uh, the guy John that ran EFW was still kind of running, but then he just uh, decided to slow down. Um, not really sure why. Uh, maybe he wasn't making any money. He, you know, at that point, we weren't really involved with helping him out on that front. He kind of kept everything close to him, which is smart. Uh, that's the way he should have did it from the get go. And, uh, so there was like a breakup of the crew because, you know, we kind of ran this thing as like a community thing, even though he handled all the money and we were all getting screwed as far as money goes and we weren't getting paid. You know, when we started getting paid, it was like 10 bucks. Um, and then your ticket sales. So me and John Thorne, we kind of had enough and, uh, we went off and branched out and we stopped talking to those guys and the EFW crew and we're doing our own thing. Uh, I had moved to Michigan at that time. I was having a hard time finding work in my shoot job. And so, uh, my father was like, Hey, come up here, get a fresh start. So I was living, uh, in the suburban Detroit area. And while I was away, Thorne met up with this guy, JC. And, uh, JC was running, he was like the talent booker for a club called Peabody's out of Cleveland. I'm not sure if uh, you guys ever played there or not.
1: Oh, we played there plenty of times, Juggalo Central.
2: JC and Ray were uh, tight at that time, Ray Rowe, and they wanted to run wrestling shows out of Peabody's in the main room, because so I don't know if you guys remember Peabody's, but Uh, There was like a side stage called the Pirates Cove. There was a stage in an upstairs club that they called like Rockstar Lounge or something like that. And, you know, they would run like a headline show, a headline act. And then all of a sudden they were a big club that was like a pay to play type place. Okay, you're a local band. You want to play with uh, Misfits. Okay, uh, you sell 70 tickets and you can play with Misfits except for they didn't tell you, you're not going to be on the, on the same stage. You're going to be in one of these like jabroni stages, either off to the side or upstairs. So, uh, we, we, uh, ended up doing shows. Uh, we came together, uh, Thorne called me and said, Hey, do you want to, you know, team up with JC and Ray? And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, what are we going to do? And he's like, well, JC can get Peabody's on Sundays for next to nothing uh, because they don't really run concerts on Sunday nights. It's a hard night to recoup any money and they'll take a chance with us and just open the room and they just keep the bar. Uh, and JC works for Peabody's. And I think, uh, at the time the deal he had is like, he would just put in extra hours of work, um, to pay for the room rent. And then, you know, whatever we made on the gate was ours and off we went. AIW was born. That's
1: a, that's a sweet deal and a sweet startup. <laughs> so so
0: yeah. the original people were you, Raymond Rowe of the Viking Experience fame. And who was the third person?
2: Uh, JC. Uh, JC's a music guy out of Cleveland. He had a band called Dead Even, I think was probably the, the biggest uh, band. They were like a hardcore
0: band. Um he's really- wasn't... If it wasn't switched, I've never heard of it, all right.
2: <laughs> he was real tight with uh with Dwid and Integrity, and so he'd go out on tour and like play bass with, with Dwid and whenever he would come into the States and play. Um and uh, he's tight with all the Mushroom Head guys, and uh, that's more metal, but whatever that is. Um now all his friends are in Mushroomhead. <laughs> it's like all, like literally like his high school best friends are now like One guy's the singer and one guy, uh, and the other guy's a guitar player. But you know,
1: hey, what's a what's a good way of making a joke about Super Mario Brothers two and Toad being in Mushroom Head?
0: Why Why Super Mario Brothers two?
1: Because he wasn't in Super Mario Brothers one, unless he was telling uh, Mario, like, "Hey, you're not good at this game, Mario." (laughs) That's like me
0: saying, "Sonya."
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Uh, Rayro. Kind of was like a he he was around, but I wouldn't say he was a like an owner or, or anything like that. He kind of like said, "Hey, maybe we should book this guy or book that guy," but he really just wanted somewhere like a home base to wrestle at and a place to call home at that time. Uh, so he really wasn't uh, involved in any of the business, so to speak. But he was like uh, one of the you know he was like JC's like right hand man at the time.
1: He's the, he's I, a coverage crew guy. Is what rumor says, or was a Courage Crew guy. I don't know if that even is, exists anymore, but that's what it, that's what I heard from uh, some dork that I went to a show with two weeks ago.
0: Well, I hope he got kicked out when he didn't fight Stone Cold Steve Austin for offering him a beer the other day.
1: <laughs> so if you go to like Bronze,
2: uh, like Instagram or whatever, uh, and he's got these like meat shirts or whatever, the guy JC that used to run uh AIW and uh there was another thing called Firestorm Pro Wrestling.
0: Oh yeah, Fire Pro.
2: Not Fire Pro, Firestorm, like the Earth Crisis. Oh, song.
0: oh like to purify? <laughs> I gotcha.
2: Yep. hundred percent. That was and uh that was the uh, the theme song and everything. It was you know a wrestling company based around Earth
0: Crisis lyrics. <laughs> that, sure, that sure is something <laughs> all right so AIW is formed. We got the three to four pillars of the company, and what year is this?
2: Uh, this is 2005. All right. So we ran the first show at Peabody's Memorial Day weekend in 2005 on the Sunday because uh, we, I guess we put w- pulled one over on the on the Peabody's guys and said, yeah, let's do it the day before Memorial Day on that Sunday, and them not realizing that you know they could have booked music acts in there on Sunday night to make money because, you know, not many people work on the following Monday being Memorial day. So it worked out for us because it was, yeah, we ran it on a Sunday, but it was really like a Saturday. And, uh, that only, we only got over on them twice though. They, uh, they got hip to our action and, uh, didn't let us do a third Memorial day weekend show the the, the third year that we were around. But yeah, we, we ran that show, um, packed it. I mean, with the ring, you know, you, you guys know how uh, small Peabody's is. I think it was like an 800-count room. Uh, but you put a 16-foot a wrestling ring in there. We put the ring right next to the stage. So, you know, you only had three uh, sides of the ring that you can stand around. And we just did standing room only. We made it like a concert environment. Uh, we ran the show. We had, you know, just about everything. We had a gauntlet match. We had a... Uh, you know, tag team match with guys going crazy. We had, you know, hardcore, just every every style of uh, wrestling was represented. Most of it was like local guys um, in the Cleveland area at the time. We didn't book any stars. We didn't start booking uh, outside of the city until uh, probably the next year in 2006 is when we started uh, dabbling with uh, booking guys that were like established independent wrestlers or guys from TNA. Cause you could book those guys, but so even with that local
1: talent, anybody of any mention,
2: uh, EC three was on those shows. And Ray, those are probably the two, the two biggest, um, I want to say we didn't start booking Gargano till 2006. I don't think he was out of wrestling school or ready to do shows in 2005, but I know, we pretty much started booking Gargano as soon as we could. Uh, basically, once JT was like, yeah, he's ready to go. Um,
1: so you saw something in him that early?
2: I wouldn't say me, because I was more focused on the presentation of the show. So like, I would do the videos, the, the DVDs, and, and uh, like make sure the music was good and everything. And uh, Thorne was more uh, with the booking with JC at that time. And then later that year is when uh, the guy Chandler um, got on. His real name's Chris. But basically Chandler was this heckler to where, and he was so loud because he's such a a big guy. You know, this guy's like six foot six, you know, 400 plus pounds. And his voice matched it. And basically we were like, what do we got to do? to get this guy to stop heckling so bad because he was so loud, <laughs> you know, and uh, people would complain and, you know, he did not have a good rep at first in the wrestling scene, you know, later on, you know, in, in his life and career, you know, things turned around for him and, you know, a lot of people, you know, started, you know, he earned respect. Um, but at first it was like, we got to get this ass out of here. So what did we do? We're like, let's make him part of the show. <laughs> and so we brought him in as the quote unquote owner. And uh that was the way to get him out of the crowd and uh messing up, you know, the shows and stuff and heckling him like super hard. So we just uh put him on the show and then as time went on, you know, it it basically he became one of uh one of the owners of the business and he was investing money and things like that.
1: Wow, that's fucking
2: crazy. <laughs> You know, basically that was 2005, you know, Chandler came in at the end of 2005 and then uh, 2006 rolls around and uh, we're pretty much going to start running monthly. Um, This is also, you know, kind of when the, uh, was the last year of doing Peabody's, you know, so basically we get in there whenever we needed. We, uh, we started off the first independent guys that we were booking was Colt Cabana and Loki um, I can't remember if Loki was already doing TNA or not, you know, cause he just bounced around everywhere. Um, Loki was cool as all hell. Um, with me at least, I know, I know people complain about him, uh, and he has his reputation, but I can't say a single bad thing about him. Um, he was great, easy to, you know, do business with. It was just pick him up. Uh, he was helping out anybody in the locker room that asked him, you know, if someone was like, Hey, could you watch my match? I, he watched the matches. Uh, even if people didn't ask him to, he, you know, he gave his insight. He helped me out with, uh, my character that I was transitioning at the time and gave me some advice and, and it, and it actually worked. So, uh, those were some of the guys, uh, at that time also, we reached out and started getting guys over from Pittsburgh and one of them being, uh, Sterling James Keenan, who is now known as Corey Graves, another WWE talent. Um, Not known for the wrestling. He's the commentator, but, you know, he he did wrestle.
0: Um, He was the savior of misbehavior at one point and former (laughs) NXT tag team champion.
2: So, yeah, 2006, you know, we're kind of rocking and rolling. We did our one year anniversary show at Peabody's and then uh, uh, we did some summer stuff. Uh, We started booking at that time another guy that was in WWE for a little while, uh, Tyrone Evans. He was uh, Michael Tarver um he was part the of the original nexus. nexus
0: yeah yep uh
2: you know he was uh trying to get work around and uh so he you know we booked him uh i actually had the uh uh the honor of wrestling with him in the match and i thought it went well
0: well tell um, me about michael because he had a he had an interesting run with wwe because he had some sort of um I don't want to say psychological things wrong with him Cause that sounds like he was going crazy, but he, he had some, some turmoil and the company that had his, his tenure with them be short lived. but you didn't run into anything that would have been a, a warning sign back when you were. working No.
2: With him? Um, people thought he had an attitude, but it was a uh, more of a, uh, like a, like a high ego of himself. But I mean, in professional wrestling, who doesn't, I, you know, these, uh, there's a lot of guys around, you know, I'm, I really can't name names, but you know, if you've ever been a locker, in you know, a in a locker room, you know, everyone kind of walks around like they're the shit and they forget that this is, you know, it's not real competition. And so, you know, you can't carry yourself over as like the toughest guy. Cause it's like, you know, a booker can be like, well, tonight you're going to wear a clown suit and, and job out in two minutes to, you know, a, a midget wrestler, <laughs> you know, and you could be, looking like Hulk Hogan, you know, jacked to the, juiced to the gills and jacked and stacked. And, you know, in comes three foot five dude and kicks you in the groin and gives you a stunner and you jobbed out for that night. So, yeah, yeah,
1: some guys... That that sounds familiar.
2: (laughs) But, uh, you know, some people, they, uh, you know, they they carry them, like, a high opinion of themselves. And I think that was probably uh, Tyrone's only knock uh, that I could see against him but like when we worked everything was cool he was willing to do everything willing to take and give and you know he you know he had requests but he never came at me in a disrespectful manner and so I don't you know a lot of these guys that have reputations I don't you know I don't know if it's just me or what but <laughs> I I did not experience uh any uh, anything negative and, and Tyrone lasted with us a really long time up until he went to WWE he Wrestled with us for years, um, and then when he would present ideas, uh, we listened to him, and uh, I think you know we rolled with them most of the time. Uh, he he wanted to do a thing where he wanted to blend MMA into wrestling, and
0: that'll never work.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it, it was tough because yeah, he what he wanted to do was like uh, wrestle in rounds, and so he did a match with Eddie Kingston for us. Uh, this was back in like two thousand seven. And they actually had rounds. I think it was like a, five, a legitimate five minute round where they, you know, worked a match and they got, you know, their 60 second break in between. And I, I you know, I can't remember the outcome. I, you know, I got the tape somewhere, but, you know, that was the style of match. Uh, I think it only lasted that one show. And then we moved on to, you know, letting him do his thing. But he always cut good promos. But, you know, some of, you know, he's uh, documented some of his uh, things with uh, where his mind was when he was in WWE. You know, he did a really good uh, podcast with Cole Cabana uh, on that one where he talked about, you know, being suicidal, being homeless before he got into WWE. I think even when he was in Florida, you know, he was uh, living, you know, rough. He didn't have a home or he was couch surfing or living in a car.
0: Should Colt uh, sue him afterwards, Asa? <laughs> <laughs> Uh
2: Probably not. <laughs>
0: okay. All right, so we got the, the first year goes by. We're no longer at Peabody's, but we're starting to get some bigger names in, also starting to kind of breed our own talent that's going on to do bigger things. Michael Tarver, you mentioned also, uh, you know, of course, at this point, I think Derek Bateman has become, or EC3 has become Derek Bateman in FCW. Uh, so what happened from there? So
2: in 2007, you know, we're kind of rocking and rolling. Um WrestleMania uh is going to do Detroit. Uh, I believe that was was that 07 or 08. Uh WrestleMania 23, I believe. Uh whatever year it was. I I want to it was 2007, I'm sorry. Um we we actually did one of the uh we did a matinee show the day before WrestleMania up in Detroit uh with no we had no wrestlers that were from Detroit on the show just fully internet. And it was one of our bigger, bigger events. We had Jake, the snake on there. Uh, Matt Morgan. Um, don't ask me why we booked him. He is actually a nightmare. Um, who else? Uh, we had a, f- uh, at that point we started using more guys based out of Pittsburgh, but, uh, none of them were star you know, uh, Sterling or Corey Graves was the biggest, guy that came out of the Pittsburgh, uh, area that we were using. But at that point, you know, we did that show. It was successful. Then we went on and we did, um, a show that we called Absolution. That was the, the show that was our anniversary show. I think they run it now in the summertime, but originally we would do Absolutions in May. Uh, that was the Memorial Day weekend. And so we did Absolution to At this point we had, uh, Larry Sweeney, on the show. If you remember him, he was a bigger independent name. Um, he was always fun cause he always had good ideas, uh, for the fans. And it, it's always great when guys come to you with ideas and not ideas where they're thinking about only themselves, but Hey, what can I do to make the fans happy to come back? And he was one of those guys. Um, he's a little out there, but aren't we all in the wrestling business? <laughs> And, uh, so we did that show and after that show is when we had our big first issue and that was JC and John Thorne were no longer getting along and JC wanted to get out. And eventually we had a split and we, the original deal is we, we had bought a ring together. It was Thorne, myself and JC put in for the ring. Chandler at this point, we, Chandler was around, but the, he this was before we considered him an owner. So he had never put in on the ring. Because uh, when we first started, we were renting JT's ring. But JT, at seeing as we were getting more and more successful, he was either raising the rent. He was making it very difficult um, to just rent a ring off of him. Like, if we didn't have 10 helpers to set it up, he wouldn't come. And it's like or he would uh, stick us up for like 200 more dollars. Just things like little things like that to kind of just, it was fun while we weren't competing with Cleveland all pro, but as soon as things got better. So like I said, we ended up getting our own ring and uh, JC Thorne and I were the, the the main three that uh, did all that. And we actually, uh, me and Thorne, we came up with a plan to get the ring away from JC and continue on with AIW because he didn't want to be a part of it anymore because he no longer could work with Thorne because they were constantly arguing. JC and Ray wanted Ray Rowe to be the man of AIW. Um, at this point, um, Hutter EC3 was already gone. He, he was, uh, already in OVW at that point, And he was kind of the focal point of what we were doing at first. And, Um, Thorne did not believe in Ray at the time. I, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what they were fighting over, like the little nuances of this, but the main thing was JC wanted Ray to be the man Thorne did not. And it became a power struggle. So the ring was actually being stored at Ray Rowe's house in his garage. And, uh, Shame on me. And this is a thing that me and JC still talk about this day, but we've kind of forgiven our our past aggressions towards each other and we're okay now. But we basically, I set up a thing and I was like, hey, I, I, you know, I'm going to rent the ring to some guy in Columbus. And, you know, can you tell Ray to open up the garage so I can come and get it? And of course, like he said, yes, and came and got it and we put it in the storage bin and Thorne's like, haha, we got the ring. Like fuck you, <laughs> and <laughs> so all hell breaks loose. And at that point, I think uh, JC was already planning on doing his Firestorm Pro Wrestling, um, and that was like uh, part of the thing when he came to me and said he no longer could work with Thorn. And uh, you know, JC at first was like, "Hey, we'll share the ring. You know, as long as we don't you know do shows on the same day." And Thorne's like, well, I'm not having any of that. So that's where the whole ring heist, whatever you want to call it, uh, came from. And that was like, you know, people around the scene here in Cleveland talked about that for a very long time. Um, But JC ended up getting another ring. He actually got the ring from the EFW when that was around. So they were still kind of doing shows in 2005. But they did a show at this one, like, sports plant venue on the east side, and they had Mick Foley on the show, and it failed miserably. Um, I wasn't there because this is when I was living in Michigan, but I'm told, like, they were lucky if it was 100 people that showed up. Oof. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I, you know, they were running radio ads, they were running TV ads, but, you know, this is, you know, wrestling was really down in 2005, especially on the independent level. And you know the bigger independent companies were surviving solely on like DVD sales online, like your IWA Mid South, and it was like because you'd you'd get a DVD of those uh, shows and you'd see like twenty people in the crowd, and people would be like, uh, "Ian, how how are you surviving?" He's like, "Because everyone buys the video, you know, across the country."
1: <laughs> That's an interesting time too, uh, because for those who were sticking with following not just any wrestling, but especially the independents. There's a lot of burgeoning stars, you know, so a lot of, like you say, those IWA tapes or uh, DVDs, you know, right. th- those are very uh, CM Punk heavy. And, you know, right. the, and, the DVDs, uh, that's where you're finding, you know, um, Brian Danielson, even Colt Cabana. So people in the know, I think we're seeing a bit of, hey, some- something is about to happen. Something's changing. So that's exactly what. Feeds into what you're saying. You know, there might be 20 people at the show, and the industry as a whole was still kind of in that early 2000s lull, but there was something, you know, bubbling beneath the surface. Right. Which, all the, Which obviously all your, turned into an explosion.
2: Right. All your top stars now, this is like, this is their cutting their teeth, you know, essentially. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, they did the show that. You know, drew a hundred people, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, you know, that they lost, but I know they lost their ass and somehow they left the, like the the owner of the sports building that they ran at, wouldn't let him take their ring. I don't know how the ring got left there, but no one claimed it for years. And JC was able to go in there and give him like 800 bucks and he had a new wrestling ring. So he, you know, uh, then it became The Wars, you know, where it was Firestorm Wrestling and versus AIW, and, you know, a lot of local guys that were uh, wrestling for us, you know, they, they ended up having to pick a side, you know, were you going to be with us, or were you going to be with JC? So, uh, so you know, a lot of guys, a lot of the guys that are in WWE ended up picking JC side, like Ray was uh, obviously with JC, and then uh, EC3 um got injured, and... Left OVW and was looking to do independence again, and he did JC shows after he got healed up. And you know, he's been in and out of o- OVW a bunch of times, but you know, why so, do you think
1: that was that somebody like EC3 would have chosen Firestorm over AIW?
2: I really don't know. Um, I know. I know why Ray. Because he at the time he was like best friends with JC. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking it's more of the same with uh with with Mike, uh EC three. Uh, but I've never asked and so I really don't know. I don't you know because there was even at first some guys uh some of the because there was a whole crew of guys that were with Mike when they lear- when they got trained, and those guys were like at first were like, Oh, we'll wrestle for both and they were just local guys that you know, worked, but they all went once Mike went with JC, they all went. Gotcha. And it was fine uh, because that, you know, forced us to uh, dig up talent. And that's when we started booking Tyler black. Uh, well, we actually, the first time we booked Tyler black, JC was still part uh, of us and we sold it to JC. Cause we're like, Oh look, he does the hardcore dance and, you know, before he gets in the ring and, you know, it's part of his intro and stuff. And it's like, Basically, we sold it to him as like a poor man CM Punk and kind of at the time he had the same
1: look without the
2: tattoos. So <laughs> let, let, let's smarten
1: it. everybody up who doesn't, who may or may not know, uh, who did Tyler Black go on to become? Seth Rollins. All right, so <laughs> Seth Rollins, essentially in, in one way, shape or form, the face of WWE for the past year or so.
2: Yeah, okay. so um, yeah, that's uh, we were booking him and and he was doing great and always always put in good matches. And then he sometimes uh, – he had a guy that he would bring in or a couple guys, um, you know, from out, out – he was uh, Iowa, I believe, uh, just over the border of Illinois. So we either could fly him to uh, – wherever he was living over there. I, I forget what city it wasn't. I know he says like Davenport is where he's from, but I don't think that Davenport has an airport or he would just go into Chicago and fly out of Chicago. But he was, he was always easy to work with always fun. Um, he couch surfed, uh, at my house. <laughs> so <laughs> you guys have that in common. And, uh, you know, we started booking some other guys as well. And uh, that's when we found Drake Younger, who is a referee. I, is he on the main shows now as a referee? Or is he he's still a,
0: NXT? He's an NXT ref, but he's like the main NXT ref, I would say.
2: Okay. Yeah, Drake is, uh, Drake's awesome. Um, once we got friendly with him, our whole vision of AIW changed. And we stopped focusing on the war quote unquote with JC and just really like laser focused on our shows because Drake, Drake could have a technical match. He could have a hardcore match and he even did a, like a, a no ropes barbed wire match for us. You know, I think a couple times and um, he, you know, he'd work with all the local guys and it was great. Um, and he was never a problem. And at that point he was a uh, combat zones. One of the big faces there. Uh, you know, and people, he had a big following from that. And then, you know, he had started doing IWA Mid-South. And so when we started having Tyler Black on the shows and Drake Younger on the shows, that's when we got in with Smart Mark Video and they're starting to sell our DVDs and, you know, thing, things just online, our online presence started taking off from that. And we were still able to mix in the local Cleveland guys Um with these, you know, with these more, uh, national stars. And then, uh, you know, in came Sammy Callahan, you know, he, before, uh, you know, he broke big, he was with us and, uh, we were giving him shots. And, um, we actually, we booked, uh, Moxley a couple times, uh, because they were boys down in, uh, Cincinnati and, they uh they also there was a, a, a women's wrestler, Haley Hatred, that was lived down there for a while. And, you know, she she came up and, you know, that because of her, we were able to start doing all women's shows. So
1: what year was it that you were started doing all women's shows? Uh, 2008, 2009. Which... Wow, that's that's crazy, especially compared to you know, how things are in the, you know, WWE, AEW, mainstream wrestling now. Um, right. it, it's still somewhat new, you know, past two or three years where women are being featured in the same right. way men are. So to think that you guys were doing that uh, 11 years ago. Yeah, and we
2: weren't, I wouldn't say we were like trailblazers or anything because uh, Shimmer was already a thing at that point. And uh, oh, what's the one out of New York? Um, there was Shimmer and there's another one. That was like a,
1: like actually dedicated all women's. I, I but I, I think there's a difference between an all women's wrestling company as opposed to a men and women's wrestling oh, okay. company I, I that's doing a show focused on the women. I okay, think, yeah. Um, yeah. That, so that, that is okay. pretty forward thinking.
0: So yeah. and to put it in perspective, that year, 2009, the WWE WrestleMania women's match for WrestleMania was an all-female battle royal that was won by Santina Morella, so. uh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, no, that's like they still had the Divas Championship, and it was still, you know, uh, I'm not going to put down the the workers because they were doing what they were doing, and, you know, they had a job and they did their job, but it wasn't like it is today where it's, you know, these women are more you know, into the wrestling, not just, uh, the show of it, you know, the, these are, these are tough ladies that are mixing it up and it's, you know, you got, you got women that were fighters, you know, making a name for themselves and stuff like that. And, and if you ask me, I think it's because of the, the mainstream success of women's MMA that was able to kind of wake the bookers up and the powers that be to say, okay, let's put the ladies out there. And not do pillow cat fights and mud wrestling or whatever, you know, stupid gimmicks. Let's have them go. And, you know, uh, you know, hats off to all the ladies that are kicking ass and taking names. Because they stepped up and they did it, you know. And it just goes to show that, yeah, we, we can be progressive in this world. <laughs> and we don't have to be shitheads, you know. But yeah, the uh, the all women shows did pretty good. They were uh, big DVD sellers, and uh, you know things took off from there, and uh, we're still going pretty strong at this point. This is uh, you know kind of my downtour uh, downturn though uh, when I started like second guessing. I think I I think it was more just me being burnt out um, because of the things, the war with JC, and you know some of the more local guys that we were booking. Uh, were becoming pains in the neck, and I just, I got tired of dealing with it, and long you're story working, short.
1: You're working in the ring at this point still as well, right?
2: Yes, yeah, you know, I'd always, you know, I never put myself in, you know, there, I never would put myself in, like, main events, I was never that kind of guy, I always thought that was just real dishonest, but uh, you ask me now, if I run a show by myself, I'm the fucking main event. I'm, bu- I'm, I'm going against every star. It's <laughs> the way that it should have been. <laughs> but, uh, you know, because that's the way you learn the best is to, to work with the best. So, but at that time, you know, that was my philosophy is I just didn't want to be known as the guy that would shell out money and, you know, book himself against the star. Cause you know, we had plenty of guys do that and they were, you know, awful and, I wasn't the greatest wrestler, but I was very competent and, you know, I can work a match with anybody. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I'm a very middle of the road guy, you know, I can, I can do some things and, you know, I, you know, I never had my opportunity, but I never asked for an opportunity either. So, you know, uh, any failures of my wrestling career is my own fault. <laughs> I, I'd like to think though, when, uh, when I did, when I did work bigger matches and, I did some cool stuff that some people, you know, might remember. Maybe not. I don't you know, whatever. But uh around well, two thousand nine, I, I just uh that's when I started uh transitioning into MMA training. So um the MMA I wouldn't say played much of a part because at first I was definitely down to wrestle matches and do fights. But uh I I think it was just I just I was tired. I was burned out from you know having to you know do all the all the hustle work. You know at this point we're running monthly, sometimes twice a month, and you know it's like oh we got to edit the DVDs and I was slipping on that. It was just a lot of work. And then plus on top of that my shoot job, I travel all over the country and and I uh, work on like this dental equipment and you know it was a really busy time for that. So it's like I'm out on the road five days a week. I gotta Lug all this equipment around so I can try to do some video editing on the road, and it just uh, it, it burned me out big time. And by 2010, I was pretty much done. And so uh, at
1: this point, you had already you had already started training MMA as well.
2: Yes, I started training in uh, 2000 May of 2009 is when I
1: had my first MMA co- uh, class. Okay, yeah, I know the the late 2000s, a lot of independent wrestlers also started if not you know half and half training mma also but straight up you know working both to the bone and just whatever caught on more right they they lean more towards that way but that is uh that's grueling working in the ring working on the business outside of the ring working mma and then like you said also having a civilian five day a week uh I don't even want to say nine to five because I know your hours aren't aren't that easy. You're traveling, um, a regular job. So that's right. that's that's easy to understand why you you know get burnt out with just that. But um was there anything else that was burning you out aside from just the uh the physical toll of it all?
2: Uh like I said, it just uh, uh things with uh the local the local guys' talent and like their egos and stuff were starting to get out of control. And it just became very tiring to uh, having to deal with them. And I didn't have to deal with them much because I wasn't booking, but I always had to hear about it. And it's just like, uh, it just became too much to handle. And it really sucked because at this point, um, Drew uh, Cordero, who runs Beyond Wrestling, um, came on board. And he was helping us with stuff because he basically wanted to co-promote his Beyond Wrestling. Now, at the time beyond wrestling was just he was like taping it it was like wrestling fight club so if you look at any of the early beyond wrestling shows if you want to call them that the audience is other wrestlers and so he would have these matches take place in front of just the other wrestlers and that was like his thing and we used to kind of shit on it and go man this will never work and it kind of did because now he's one of the bigger promoters in the country. And, uh, you know, he, he, he moved back up to the, uh, I think he's in Rhode Island and he's got that whole area like Rhode Island, Boston, whatever. And he's running live shows and he's had a lot of guys, you know, come through beyond wrestling, you know, that have, that have gone on. And, uh, so he was in with us and, You know, he was starting to like invest a little bit here and there in some of our production and, uh, you know, he was kind of the same thing where he was really testy with like Chandler and Thorne and he ended up, you know, kind of just splitting away. And that was like the last straw for me because I really liked Drew and I was just like, this guy is extremely valuable because he understood social media better than we did and i was like that's going to be the future especially because at that point uh youtube was starting the ads and being able to make ad revenue on youtube videos and then facebook was starting the fan pages and i'm like this guy's keyed in all this where we don't have time to learn this like he kind of already knows it and you know why would you guys kind of kick him out so to speak come around 2010 i was getting ready to have my first mma fight we had a show booked like two weeks before and it was just a bar show it was a paid show it it sucked and that that was my last aiw show um i didn't end up doing the september date which was at a much better venue and uh my match is nothing to speak highly of it was like a five-man tag match and <laughs> uh i really didn't do anything in it and and nothing memorable, uh, was from it. And then, uh, at that point I was still cool with the guys and I was like loaning some of my equipment, but they were, you know, I was weaning them off and they were doing their own thing and they pretty much scrapped all the production that I had bought into to, to start like the lighting and stuff like that. And they were like, eh, we don't need it. And I was like, okay, but, I was still filming the shows for him with my cameras and, uh, it was cool. But then, uh, the big breakup happened, uh, a couple months later, uh, would be like the last time I talked to Thorne and that beef was basically, it was something outside of wrestling, but
0: kind of caught in the middle of something that, that you didn't do, but it took place in your house. So all of you kind of separated at that point, but at that time, had you already kind of separated yourself from aiw or that was the yes. straw of the camel's back
2: no i was already i was already out but like i said i was going to the shows uh you were still I,
0: contributing in, in ways that you could because you still felt connected to it but after this exactly happened, you had no emotional connection to it at all if anything right. you had bitterness towards it exactly i got exactly. you all right now i know that aiw has had other controversies with wrestlers specifically um you know i think of matt riddle and one and also uh i know seditious also had a some sort of public issue with them were you still in the company during those times or that was way after you were gone? oh
2: that's way after i heard the matt riddle stuff and you know what it was funny because i go what he's describing is spot on how we used to roll so you know I, i even there's the one time i listened to like a john thorne interview when he rebutted what matt riddle said and I go, John Thorne, how can you rebut any of this? This, this sounds exactly right. You know, wrestlers drinking in the locker room. Like that was, you know, we were the party wrestling company and that's why people liked us. you know, uh, kudos to Matt Riddle. You know, he's kind of got the reputation of like this party guy himself. And you know what? He came off as all business to me. You know, this is just me from seeing the outside and what they did. Um, I don't know anything about the Sid Vicious thing. I guess he decided to no-show,
0: and they, well, softball season had just started. In his yeah, head. something like <laughs> it.
2: yeah, you know, Sid was being Sid, I guess, but I yeah, I can't really say much for that because I don't know. And we we've had guys. We were I was supposed to wrestle Kamala because I used to do this character called the Savage, and it was basically the white Kamala, and I dress you know in the cheetah print like singlet and you know, act, act like a goofball, like I was a beast man or something. And, uh, we were going to have a match and, uh, yeah, Kamala no showed us. He didn't get on the flight. He's like, Oh, I left my ID in my pants. And we were naive, uh, at the time. But of course, like I learned, uh, shortly thereafter working my traveling job that you can fly without an ID. You just have to go through hardcore security.
0: You parted ways on, on bad terms. And it, from True. what you said at the beginning, uh, you know, you still haven't gotten back on good terms with not only AIW, but the the wrestling business as a whole. But I know recently, or I shouldn't say I know, but I feel like recently you have been trying to kind of ease your way back into it. You mentioned at the beginning that you do miss it. So are you thinking about getting back into wrestling itself, like being in the ring or just being yes. a fan? What is it that uh, excites you now about uh, wrestling? You miss?
2: Everything. Um, I you, I did go to the All In show um, in Chicago with, uh, my buddy Scott and, uh, we checked that out and it was really cool. And, you know, I'm kind of like super, super like hands off, like casual fan. Like if I, I'll see a match every now and then I'll go, Oh, that was cool. And, you know, I try to, I try to stay up on people I know that are, you know, doing, doing the big things right now, but, um, you know and i'm kind of excited i haven't watched any of the AEW like pay-per-view since they've become AEW but like i'm actually excited for tonight uh i'm actually going to sit down and watch that and see the competition i'm like oh this could be really cool so that's kind of brought me back in um i'm pretty much retired from MMA i might do one more fight because of i'm just old you know i'm 38 now and uh to be a professional athlete that's you know Wrestling's one thing you can take care of yourself in certain ways. MMA is 100% imp- unpredictable, you know. So if my knee is on its way out, I can't protect that like I can in pro wrestling, you know. If my opponent says I'm gonna kick you in the knee, well, he's not gonna tell me. He's just gonna kick me in the knee, and my knee's gonna go out, and then I'm screwed, you know. So I'm I might do one more fight next summer. And uh, just trying to see if I can make another run and just have some fun. I'm not looking to do, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday bookings every weekend. Uh, you know, one or two matches a month is good for me. So I've reached out to some promoters. I got to put together, you know, my resume again and, you know, things like as if I was a rookie because I wasn't that well-known. And, you know, so much time has passed. It's, It's been since I've really been dabbling seriously. In wrestling, it's probably been about nine years. Um I've done some matches here and there in 2015, 2016, 2017 uh, for a guy up in Port Huron, Michigan. uh Blue Water Championship Wrestling, and I was his tag team champion. So I did some regular shows here and there every couple months. You know, I'd go up there and do a match. I had my pro fight. I won my pro fight, so I'm still undefeated as an MMA fighter. I was 8-0. As an amateur, I won three titles in the super heavyweight division. And then uh, as a pro, I'm 1 0. And I get constantly asked to do fights. And it's kind of up to my wife. She's like, you can wrestle a couple times, but
0: yeah. Undefeated in your pro career, that you're like the Maria Menunos of MMA because she's undefeated at WrestleMania.
2: <laughs> yeah. One of the coolest things that I ever thought that uh, happened is when I was coming up in the late nineties, you know, all the wrestlers had their own like web pages and stuff, and they always looked awful. And one of the coolest websites content wise, but worst looking websites was Chris Jericho's his, his website looked straight out of angel fire, but it was, he had a database of all of his matches where he kept track of who he worked with you know what happened, you know the outcome. I think he even got like the times in there as well and the dates, you know, of course the date, but I wish I would have done something like that. And that was actually uh, one thing that JT Lightning did. Uh he had a notebook of of his whole wrestling career where he wrote down, you know, date, time, whatever, opponent. And I wish I would have did that. There's a couple sites out there that have some of my stuff because they followed like AIW DVDs, but they don't have everything. I, I, I'm I'm trying to you know branch out. I, I've heard back from a few of the promoters, a couple guys in Ohio that are uh, respected promoters outside of you know outside of the Cleveland area. There's not much going on in Cleveland other than AIW. There is some stuff, but it's uh, one has decent workers but doesn't really draw, and the other is like. Uh, it's the most outlaw of the mud shows. In fact, uh, they've been featured multiple times on the $5 wrestling uh, Gmo and psycho Mike. uh, uh, And they were always nice to me. I don't really have anything bad to say, but they use a lot of untrained guys and stuff and put together these shows. And uh, they can be pretty bad. I used to, I used to do some work for on those shows, but they'd always put me with like trained guys. So, uh, but those shows can get pretty brutal though. The untrained guys do the, you know, they do the hardcore and they go for it. And I mean, this looks like tournament of death, you know, uh, what's combat zones, death match tournament. It looks like that. And it's just, these dudes that are not really trained. They just go in there and just maim each other. It, and I, I like a good death match as long as it's like, you know, I like the 1995 cactus Jack death match. I don't like the 2008, tournament of death like dudes are putting syringes
1: through their cheeks that grosses me out well i mean there's you know you know and i know and hopefully our listeners know there's those are worlds apart you know you put a japanese death match and it's it's wrestling it's death match but it's wrestling where a lot of the stuff that you're referring to and even now and you know hey it's just my opinion that's not my shit but they're for some fucking strange reason there's a market for that people love seeing you know two civilians that have no business being in a fucking wrestling ring you know uh in any way shape or form not physically or mentally um go in a wrestling ring and rip jorts and just fucking throw exploding basketballs at each other
2: yeah i mean that's the thing is uh you know you you watch like the, the iwa the famous death match tournament with cactus jack They're working the, you know, there's the barbed wire board, there's the the bed of nails, but they work it. And it's like, they don't just slam, you know, they don't just pick it up, slam the guy and call it a day. I feel like the deathmatch tournaments now, that's all they do. And, you know, you have to one-up it every time. So it's like now guys are taking weed whackers to the stomach. And, you know, like I said, the syringe through the cheek and like actually squirting water out of it. You know, it just... It, it, it's insane. Like the the guys that are, and it's just like, you know, you probably could get the same reaction from the fans. Maybe not though. Cause maybe that's the market is they want more gore, more guts, more blood. And that's why I first saw the syringe thing. And I was like, Nope, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's too much, man. And I'm, you know, and you're talking to a guy who I, I got into wrestling because of ECW, like, Yeah, I used to watch as a kid. I used to watch WWE. I was never a WCW guy. Um, I didn't watch WCW until Nitro was, like, winning in the ratings war. And then I got kind of hooked. But it was my, my like, and I would watch, like, Royal Rumble and WrestleMania and Survivor Series every year, but I wouldn't watch, you know, those those Saturday superstars and stuff. And uh, what really brought me back in was, like, oh, I picked up a, a Mark Mag you know, at, at the magazine stand in the mid nineties and it was pro wrestling illustrated, but they had a couple articles on like WWF guys and WCW guys, but they featured ECW and that's like all they talked about. And I'm like, what the hell is ECW? Well, here I'm, you know, I'm having a sleepover with one of my buddies and, uh, (laughs) and what's that? (laughs) Oh, and, uh, we turn, we're like watching the TV guide channel, if you remember that. And we see sports, we had sports channel on our cable system. And at 2 AM on Friday, extreme championship wrestling. I go, that is the thing that I read about my, uh, in my magazine. I was like, we got to watch that tonight. So we like forced ourselves to stay up, you know, drinking, you know, cokes and, and, and eating candy and whatever. And like, we watched it and that was like, that changed my life. The first episode I see, you know, it's the Dudley boys, but it wasn't Devon and Bubble Ray. This is, uh, no, it wasn't even the Dudley boys. It was, uh, this is when uh Devon Dudley was like the, the like throwaway guy. And I think it was him and someone else and they were in the ring and then you hear Natural Born Thrillers hit or Natural Born Killers, whatever, you know, New Jack song and you hear come the gangsters with like the garbage can full of weapons, the whole nine. And I'm like, this is my shit. I, I found my calling in life. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And then like, it's filmed at ECW arena. So of course, like new Jack does the ta- you know, the table spot where he jumps, you know, 10 foot high on the divan on the table. And I go, I, this is blowing my mind. And from that point on, I figured out how to uh, program my VCR. And if I didn't stay up, you know, I, vid- I taped uh ECW every week and I still have those VHS tapes of when I taped it like every week I have like six or seven of them. And I just, the, all they say on the spine is ECW one ECW
1: two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think a, a lot of us felt like that, especially coming from, you know, hardcore and punk and metal and such seeing right. ECW for the first time was kind of like the equivalent, you know, of, of moving on from mainstream music to more underground music. And it kind of strikes a nerve. I actually uh, just got rid of my ECW VHS, you know, directly from the, in New York, it was the MSG network at 1 a.m. on Saturdays um, or Tuesdays. Um, yeah, I just got rid of mine somewhat recently within the last year or two.
0: So, last question here is that we've been doing this thing with our guests lately where we do a, a Mount Rushmore of whatever, right? Because there's always discussions about, hey, what's your Mount Rushmore or what's your big four, you know, whatever. So,
1: I was going to say, Nick, you're a big guy in the wrestling industry. So I was going to have you say your Mount Rushmore of big men in wrestling. This is always a a hotly debated topic, especially because people's definitions of what makes a big man in wrestling, you know, to begin with. But, um, to me, I feel like it's, it's fairly obvious what makes a big man as opposed to what is a large wrestler. So in your opinion, the Mount Rushmore of big men in wrestling,
2: well, Vader and Bigelow, um, for sure. Um, I don't think anyone would dispute that. And if you do, I'm just gonna have to call you a jabroni. Um I, do we count Brody as a big man? I, I, we I think we have to, right? He's huge. Yeah. But I mean he wasn't I, I guess like if you're just saying big man,
1: then yeah, yeah.
0: See, but this, I, I didn't know is, if you were getting at the, like
2: super heavyweight, like well yeah,
1: this is this is where the debate comes in. So Brody is big. Do I consider Brody as being part of this conversation? I say no. The same way I don't consider Sid to be part of this conversation. Because are those guys big? Yes, but they're very tall. They look like, you know, if you take a uh, six-foot prototype professional wrestler and then just
2: skew Make them it. Make seven foot tall. <laughs> it's,
1: exactly. If you skew it to proportion in Photoshop, oh, all of a sudden you have a 6'11 guy and that's, you know, that's Sid. You know, if you shrink down Sid, it's Neville or Pac or Pac or whatever the fuck. So right. I always think of super heavyweights. So exactly okay. like Vader, Bigelow.
2: OK, so I'd go Vader, Bigelow. Um, I think you got to go at Abby the Butcher and wow. Dusty. Dusty for sure.
1: But Dusty? does Dusty count? I mean, I Dusty so.
2: was the body type, but I mean, he really didn't. He didn't Somebody's work that style.
1: He didn't work that style, and he 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 wasn't as physically imposing, you know, in a mass way as a guy like Bigelow or Vader. Where in all actuality, you know, I don't think Dusty was that much shorter than Bigelow, and he probably wasn't that much lighter. But he didn't work that big man style, and he never gave mm-hmm. off the impression of being.
2: Yeah, a, he was. A big he man. was like, yeah, he he always worked. Just uh, you know, he worked with all the best. You know, he worked with Flair and. You know, he worked that style, but OK, so we'll throw we'll throw Dusty out. And uh, so who would I got? Abby, I, I guess I got to go Yoko.
1: There we uh, go. See, that, that's what I'm talking about. That is that is a Mount Rushmore I could get behind. I don't know if that would be my exact picks, but Vader would definitely be on there. Yokozuna would definitely be on there. Bigelow being on there is completely logical. And I think Abdul the Butcher is completely logical as well yeah i mean you know he has that's
0: crazy to me that you both think abdullah the butcher is on there not because he's not a big person but
1: was his in-ring work anything
0: to write home about uh
1: depends on what you think of in-ring work you know it was dirty and fucking nasty and you know he's probably never done a goddamn fucking wrestling hold ever but jesus christ man groundbreaking stuff and just legendary because of right. he, he, looks, he looks like a complete psychopath uh, his, the, what he did do in and out of the ring in the physical nature was just absolutely out of this world as well as the fact that we all know that he uh, is part of covering up the Bruiser Brody murder
0: I would pick Mabel slash Viscera over Abdullah the Butcher on this list
1: I don't think that's crazy either in all actuality i i may personally i wouldn't put either of them on this list but i i don't think that's crazy i don't think either one of them are, are crazy i, I, I can
2: yeah i can't argue that big daddy Viss, uh, he was pretty he, when when he kind of got into the comedy thing at the end there uh that was good stuff that was a very entertaining in the like lull of wrestling you know that yeah. was when wwe was kind of i was like this isn't so much fun to watch anymore, but when he would come out and just be like overly sexual, basically playing Val Venis character. But you know, you just have this giant dude uh, who's got like this mohawk. And I think he was still doing the, like uh, what was his viscera eyes? Like he was still wearing the contacts. It's just like, what the
1: hell? Yeah. He, he's, he's Ember Moon's father. <laughs>
0: Ember Moon, an AIW alumni.
1: Oh boy. i
2: I think viscera had been there too after uh, i was gone so
0: oh boy is a great reaction to that and i think that's a great way to wrap this up nick we definitely appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us about your career and also your your legacy in aiw which continued to have a a substantial impact on the wrestling business both before and after you not that uh you were not a Uh, integral cog in that machine the guy that started rolling so thank you for that we definitely wish you success in getting back in the ring and having fun and we also look forward to talking to you in the future about the wrestling shows that we normally do because i know that you're kind of not a an avid viewer right now but maybe with this newfound enthusiasm and of course just the looming mass quantity of wrestling available on television starting this week alone that's right have you back on, and we can kind of break anytime. some of this stuff down from a different perspective. Since you know we don't really uh, have that the same viewpoint that you might, which is which is cool because oh. otherwise we would just be agreeing with each other over and over again, which is only fun ninety percent of the time.
2: <laughs> right on. Thank you. And uh, yeah, anytime.
1: Thanks, brother. We'll talk to you soon.
2: All right. Thanks. Take care, guys.
0: Alright, we want to thank Nick Bashir for joining us once again to discuss AIW and his career. You can check out AIW on AIW Wrestling on YouTube.com if you want to go back in the archives and check out some of his work. But if you want to check out some of our work, it's coming up. We'll be discussing the upcoming Hell in a Cell pay-per-view as well as uh, comparing and contrasting the ongoing NXT versus AEW programming on the Wednesday nights. So until then, there's only one thing you need to remember this week, and that is the Rockstar Rules. We'll see you up there. Bye.
2: Bye. You never know. Uh, You know, Ohio could take hold of me, you know.